Scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? If you don't have one, raise your hand. The guys in the back will make sure. We have some right over in this area here. Father, we're grateful that we have another time to come together and to sing and to to pray with each other and to to pray for each other in Jesus' name to You, Father, knowing that as a Father You listen to us and hear us and do the loving thing that a Father does. Father, increase our faith to accept Your answers. We we pray that uh, that You will bless Connie. She travels and, and makes her home with her her, her family, her physical family. We pray that, that you will uh, guard her journey and deliver her from evil men and establish her in the, that new home. We are grateful, Father, for this text that we have tonight and for the way that it is just saturated with hope. And it's our prayer tonight, Father, that as we think about it, in light of the world that we live in, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Father, bless us in this time and draw us closer together as you draw us closer to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank Daryl for reading uh, that passage out of Isaiah 9. That Isaiah 9 passage is one of the best known passages on the coming of the Messiah. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. He's called Wonderful Counselor and a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. It's uh, an astonishing text. But there was another part of it, the verse preceding that, that caught my eye this week. Verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What Isaiah is saying 
in, in looking down the road to this son, this child, whose government will be forever, whose peace will be so pervasive that it, it covers all people like a blanket and will go on forever and ever that this Son will also bring in a time, a, a day will come when all the apparatus and gear for violence and for war and for battles will be consumed and no longer exist. But you know as well as I do that that day has not arrived yet. You were probably already aware of the great tragedy that struck the people of Peshawar, Pakistan uh, about eight, nine days ago. Taliban in retaliation for some military actions against their forces on the border near Waziristan, entered a school and killed 132 children plus nearly a dozen teachers and adults. Just walked into the school. Just walked into the school and perpetrated unspeakable horror upon children, their teachers. Quite frankly, I don't want to go where my imagination can take me. Wall Street Journal writes that in, in, in thinking about these kinds of atrocities, it, it, we're quick as human beings, especially in a very modern world, to think that this is the product of, of some twisted mentality, of some twisted mind, some sick mind, and it is. But the Wall Street Journal writer, in, in thinking through all of the things that are happening in that part of the world, is saying that, that there's a new bottom line for these kinds of atrocities. It's not necessarily just payback, it's barbarity. Barbarity is the new bottom line for these kinds of terroristic acts. And so this week, during my meditation on the texts that deal with the birth of Jesus, I could not help but to go to this passage in Matthew. Chapter 2, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. The voices heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of and went to the land of, of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Why is that passage in the Bible? Why is that, that passage recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel as he, he speaks to us about the birth of Jesus? Well, number one, it's a reminder that the spiritual battle takes nearly all the time, at least in our experience of it, a physical form. 
It's a reminder that the spiritual battle takes a physical form. The Bible is clear that there is a spiritual battle that is being waged from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. When all of the things that God has pronounced as tov, that they are good, they are the exact representation of what He thought in His mind as He spoke a word. And it all came into to existence. He created all that we know, all that there is, all that, we, all that we know. And He said that it is good. But we're not very far drilling down into the Bible before we realize that all is not well. There is this mysterious serpent that shows up in the third chapter and begins to defy the Word of God. Begins to question the Word of God. And when you read the, the, uh, the, the account in, in the original language, you sort of get this sense that there is a sneer of disdain in the words of the serpent, did God really say? Did God really say? It's so laughable that you should eat of this fruit and die. Did He really say that? From the very beginning, there's this, this hint of something much greater and deeper and darker that's happening behind the scenes. But it takes, it takes a physical form. Humanity takes a hit. And that's why throughout the entire Bible there is an admonition to, to obey God's rules, to obey His Word, to obey His will, to understand what, what the majesty and the holiness of God entails. That people are to follow and to be faithful and to trust that God. And yet that spiritual battle wages in the hearts of all men. Finally, when we come down to the New Testament, Paul is trying to equip the people that he loves very much in Ephesus who have ex expressed their faith in Christ, who have had their sins washed away, who have formed a community of faith, a church, a body of Christ, the bride of Christ in that city of Ephesus. But Paul knows full well that what they're facing is going to be in many ways an uphill fight. Yes, they are up to it. And yes, the people are equipped by God to be able to deal with it. But he reminds them that it is a spiritual battle that is taking place that, 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 that we, we sense and experience in a very physical form. He says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord. That's where the strength is. It's in His mighty power. You are to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, and it will, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. The encouraging thing, though, is to know that that as we saw in the book of Revelation last Sunday morning, that, that the ultimate battle, the ultimate victory has been won. That, that this is something that has, been, that has been brought about, accomplished by Christ Himself. That great passage in Revelation chapter 12 talks about not just a battle, but a war. What, what John is describing in Revelation chapter 12, what he's, what he's trying to communicate is that this is not a skirmish. This is not some battle in a series and a list of, of battles to come. But this is the war that broke out in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. 
and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads Satan. The whole world. Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and His angels with Him. As we read about the death of all of those boys in Bethlehem, it is a reminder that the spiritual battle takes a physical form. Something that we experience every day. But then number two, it's a reminder that we all suffer from the fall. That in our own hearts are the seeds of our own destruction. You know, I'm always astounded by the developmental process of sin. It begins with an act of eating. I eat every day. Sometimes I eat more than I should. It's a natural thing. But it begins with a simple act of eating. But it's the eating of a piece of forbidden fruit. And in the eating of some fruit that was forbidden, you only have to go just a couple of chapters and then all of a sudden you have murder. It is... An escalation. It is a progression. And it does it quickly. The act of eating a piece of forbidden fruit escalates quickly to murder. But it really wasn't just eating a forbidden piece of fruit, was it? It was in the act of rebelling against the Word of God in our lives and trusting it. It's a reminder of what it is in human hearts and what it is that is in our human heart. Uh, you know the name Charles Colson. He, he wrote a book some years ago entitled, Who Speaks for God? And he writes uh, in, in one of the chapters about a, a story that he uncovered. Um, I, I don't think that he saw it originally in the, the 60 Minutes episode, but he came across the transcript of, of an article or a piece that Mike Wallace was doing on 60 Minutes on Adolf Eichmann. And Wallace, in, in this, this, uh, on 60 Minutes, was introducing a story on Adolf Eichmann, whom you know is the principal architect of the Holocaust, and in it he poses this central question. He says, how is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? End of quote. Now, the first time that people read that or hear that, they're repulsed by it. The idea that, that moi could, could be someone as heinous and someone as evil as Eichmann seems preposterous. That, 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 that just repulsed by the idea that that kind of evil exists in us. And yet, Wallace's question was posed after an interview that he had with a fellow by the name of Yahil Denur, who had survived the concentration camp in Auschwitz, and had testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trial in 1961. And when it came time for Denur to, to walk into that courtroom and to offer his testimony, it was Eichmann who had personally sent Denur to Auschwitz. When he walked into that courtroom and saw Eichmann for the first time in 18 years, he stopped short of where he was supposed to sit down, and he began to sob. And as he sobbed, he grew weak. And as he grew weak, he fainted. And when he fainted, he collapsed on the floor. And the question was asked of, of Denur, why, why that emotional response to seeing Eichmann nearly 20 years, two decades, after all of that horror had, had passed from your life? Were you overcome with anger? All of those feelings of anger had welled up to the top again, had, 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 had swelled out of your, your memory to a place where having not dealt with them, you felt that anger in such a, fer, a, a ferocious level 
that it caused you to sob and to faint? Was it the memories? Was it the memories of what you had seen in Auschwitz? Or was it fear of coming into His presence again? Denur went on to explain to Wallace in light of those questions that in that moment he had had an epiphany that Eichmann was not some godlike officer sending people to death. Eichmann was just an ordinary man. Was just an ordinary man. And he said, and I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. End of quote. You know, one of the really astounding things that you hear all the time when there has been some great crime committed in the middle of, of people in a neighborhood, in a, in a workplace. What is it that you hear? I never would have thought that he was capable of doing that. He was such a nice fellow. She was such a nice person. She was, she was my friend. I thought I knew her. She was such a nice person. He was such a nice man. Quiet. Kept to himself. Was doing kind things. We're so surprised that a guy, that a, that a woman like this could do something like that. And yet as we read in Matthew chapter 2, there is this Herod. This Herod who is the architect of the massacre of the innocents of Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity. And what you, we know about him is that, you know, in many ways he was a very despicable individual who learned to murder and to remove anyone who had got in his way. He was, he was somebody that, that allowed ambition and, and the thirst and the hunger for power to kind of overrun his sensibilities. And in the end, he was violent and mean-hearted and he was murderous and he was, he was petty. And the Herod heart, bottom line, is in all of us. And it begins with a, with a self-centeredness that says we're going to do what we want to do and nobody's going to stop us. I'm going to do what I want to do because I can do it. I can do it because I'm, self, I'm a self-operating, self-governing, self-authorizing individual. And that Herod heart is in all of us. But then finally, it's a reminder of how different God's love is from the human variety. One of the things that's really interesting in, in our culture, and I shouldn't say interesting, it's just a euphemism for sad. It, one of the things that, that's interesting in our culture is how doing what normal has somehow become heroic. You know what I'm saying? What is really heroic has been diminished. What is really heroic has been watered down by the easy way that we throw this word around. And then we are confronted, though, in reading this passage, we are confronted by the extraordinary, bewildering at times, but breathtaking all the time, love of God and how different it is from our normal human variety. Into a world not only ready to kill, but to kill innocents to stop a birth. Jesus comes anyway. God knows what is in the heart of Herod. God knows what is in the heart of Herod. God 
knows what is in the human heart. The passage in John that says that Jesus did not need testimony about men because He knew what was in the heart of men. God knows what is in the heart of Herod, but sends Jesus anyway. And Jesus escapes this moment of danger and has to flee the country only to come back to find more danger. He escapes this moment of danger only to fulfill His mission at the end of His life on a cross. And yet, He came into a world like this. I think of all of these passages that describe the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. A new command I give you, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let no debt remain outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Do everything in love. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You get the idea. In James chapter 2, there's this piece of, of Scripture that where, where James is talking about the fellowship and about the, 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 the experience that we've had with God and how it, it overflows into the fellowship that we have with one another. And he says, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. I sometimes think that our love, though, is trumped by judgment. So what do we expect from the Prince of Peace? What do we expect from this Prince of Peace? Well, one of the things that we, we come to expect and to rely on is that, and this comes from Paul's writing in Philippians, that one of the things that happens when you enter into God's kingdom and God's kingdom enters into your heart and God is near to you and you are near to God, even if the time is troublesome and even if the time makes it feel like you're in a vice about to be crushed, that you're perplexed at the things that are going around you, maybe confounded, not understanding why these things happen, but what you do know is that you're in pain. One of the things that you expect from the Prince of Peace in this life, in this day, is a peace that passes understanding. It's a, it's a peace that you can't really describe. It's a peace that you experience that is able to transcend all of the other things around you. It is, it is a peace that comes to you because of God. And part of the power of God in your life is to be able to take that painful moment and to take those painful times and those times of sorrow and suffering and to transcend that with your heart and your soul and your mind with a peace that you can't really describe it, but you know it's there because you feel it and it's as real and as palpable as concrete. 
That's what you expect today. But what we expect from the Prince of Peace is to see one day the door open, wide open, and the light of His kingdom, His perfect kingdom, His established kingdom, His fulfilled kingdom to come shining into our lives with such greatness that we're blinded by it. And to know that we're in the presence of God. And that there is not even a trace of anything murderous among the saved. That peace has triumphed over sin. That the peace that we sense, that passes understanding, that we taste in this life, becomes the full-on expression of our relationship experience in the presence of God. A peace that has been authored by His love and promised sealed by the blood of His Son that comes to us forever and ever and ever. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. You know, the one thing that you can't get away from in this world is, is the tragedy and the sorrow and the suffering. But the one thing that God is, is, is wanting to insert in your life is not just a peace that passes understanding, but a peace that exists between you and God because you have been extracted from that battle. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're now His son, His daughter. As we looked at that passage in Galatians 4 this morning, you're now His heir. All of the blessings, all of His riches, all of His greatness, all of the beautiful things that God has, He bestows on you. Maybe tonight you've not known that peace in any form. That can become a reality for you because of this baby that was born on a night like the one that Matthew describes. And if that does describe you, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We're going to sing a song of praise, but it's also a song of invitation to those who are looking for that peace. Come down. Talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Lord, take my life. Make it.